2024 begins much as 2023 ended with war intensifying and ongoing. We'll talk about all of that. Plus, a special guest, a veteran of the Joe Biden administration who made the journey from CJ Craig to Rachel Maddow. We're talking to Jen Psaki. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Unique Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news. 2024. Um, what can you say besides, let's hope it's uh, not as bad as 2023. Um, if the beginning of that year here is any indication, then I have to tell you, Jonathan, that uh, at the stroke of midnight, Hamas uh, launched 27 rockets over southern and central Israel, obviously 90 days into this war and the terror organization uh, in Gaza still has the ability to decide uh, when uh, it fires these rockets and uh, over uh, where. Uh, 18 uh, of those rockets were intercepted. The rest uh, fell in, in open fields. No one was hurt, but obviously for Israelis, who, to begin with, I think it's safe to say we're not really in a festive mood, were reminded, if they needed to be reminded, of, of, of where we are. Yeah, I mean, over the rest of the world, people are watching fireworks displays at midnight, uh, even in you know small villages and towns, that's, that's the thing, to do a fireworks display. And what a reminder of the contrast with how things are in Israel and in Gaza and in the region now where um, the stroke of midnight, as you say, there's it's not uh, party poppers going off, it's actual real rockets aimed at civilians. And yeah, sort of clearly sending a message that um, Hamas's fighting power has not been so reduced that it can't uh, see in the new year by doing that. And that's, you know, it just absolutely confirms that. The, the volume has decreased over these 90 days, but we're, we're still very much living in that cycle of sirens and rockets. And I have to be, you know, completely honest with you, when I heard it for the first time, and I thought even inside a war, you're not exactly focused on, I thought, wait, it's fireworks? Midnight? There's a war? Who does fireworks when there's, you know, and it's, and suddenly I realized it's actually rockets, uh, because a lot of them were intercepted over, over Tel Aviv. So that was the noise we were hearing, and, and definitely not fireworks. Uh, and as I said, it, this is how it begins. Although not the main thing, I know this is not, this <laughs> is not the main topic here at all. But for people who are outside yeah. Israel and have not been in Israel on December 31st, in my memory, it's no big deal at all, right? Nothing happens. There wouldn't even be fireworks, would there, on, or going into January the 1st? So yes, fireworks are not really uh, what we do here, even in a normal year uh, on December 31st. That's more uh, what happens on Independence Day around May. Uh, but there are, I think, over the years, it has become more of a tradition, this sort of New Year's Eve and the parties and things like that. Again, this year, obviously, all very subdued because everything that is going on, most Israelis don't really have the mood uh, to party when there are, you know, soldiers in fighting a war in Gaza and 130 hostages held, uh, still held. Yeah, and uh, that reflected uh, in, in diaspora with people sending each other messages just saying, obviously, I can't wish you, you know, a happy 2024. Let's just hope it's not as awful as, it, you know, we, we fear and those sort of grim uh you know, black-bordered messages that people are sending to each other at a time normally people would be trying to find some cheer. Uh, but it wasn't just at the stroke of midnight that the 2024 uh, kicked off. It was very, very early on. 
With this um, assassination in Beirut uh, of a key Hamas figure. Yeah, it's Saleh Al-Aruri, who's essentially number two in Hamas's political wing. So he's Ismail Aniyah's uh, deputy. He is, you know, head of the military wing of Hamas in the West Bank. He's, he's running all this from Beirut. He had to move a few times from Turkey to Qatar and now to, to uh, Lebanon. Uh, he was responsible for many terror attacks against Israel and, of course, perpetrated or one was one of the architects of the massacre of October 7th. Now, this operation was very much a surgical operation. It's a huge coup for uh, the IDF, if indeed it was the IDF, uh, that did it, sending a very strong message saying, you know, it's not just rhetoric to Hamas leadership. We're there to get you. I think it's very important to note that no one from Hezbollah was hurt in this uh, uh, targeted uh, strike, which is, of course, very important when you ask yourself, will Hassan Nasrallah in any way uh, react to this happening in Lebanon? So that's a very uh, uh, interesting question. We should also note that Al-Khawri had a bounty on his head. He was also on the most wanted list in the United States. There was a $5 million bounty on, on his head. And of course, the lingering question uh, in Israel and beyond Israel is, does this open a second front after it happened in Beirut? The general thinking here is that Hezbollah, being the proxy of Iran, is there to protect Iran and not there to protect uh, Hamas in Gaza. Again, general, but of course, this can escalate uh, quite quickly. And that was confirmed, in a way, uh, reading between the lines of the remarks made by Nasrallah himself, who, as it happens, was due to make and making a big speech for the anniversary, and we'll come on to this, of the death, the killing of uh, the key Iranian military figure, uh, Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, who is killed by the, it's understood by the Americans in the Trump administration. And the Iranians had always, you know, huge figure in Iran, and they claim that a million turned out for his funeral. And so each year, the anniversary of his death is marked in a big way. As a proxy of Iran, Nasrallah, you know, speaks on that day, on that anniversary, and he made a speech which, you know, the people who analyze these things thought between the lines was not the speech of somebody who was saying, right, we're going to be at war now with Israel. Instead, he talked about how if this leads to an attack on Hezbollah, then we will respond rather than seeing it as a direct attack. Other analysts, though, of course, thinking if you have somebody of this um, high profile who is killed, as it were, under your wing, then almost for your own credibility, if you're Hezbollah, you have to respond, you have to be seen as being policing your neighbourhood, that you can protect people in it. And so there will be some kind of response. The other thought I had, as soon as I heard about the Al-Aruri assassination, was of a conversation I'd had with somebody, uh, you know, fairly senior in the IDF, who said to me, think Munich, meaning think Munich 1972. To the massacre of the Olympic Israeli Olympic athletes in 1972, and how you know Israeli intelligence and the Israeli state set about methodically and very patiently, one by one, and it's depicted in that film Munich, finding those responsible for that massacre and taking them out, and that was suggested to me as the possible Israeli response. In a way. You know, I thought, okay, they're not doing that because instead Israel is, you know, bombarding Gaza very heavily, but going after these uh, figureheads. This feels to me in that vein 
And on one level, you think, well, that is a, as a, if that's posed as an alternative to what's going on in Gaza, that's a different approach. If, on the other hand, it's in addition to, then I think front and centre is the fear that you raise, which is, okay, so now Israel's going to be a war on two, you know, kinetic wars in the south in Gaza against Hamas and in the north in Lebanon against Hezbollah and wreaking in Beirut what they've already done in Gaza as a possibility. You know, it's really interesting. You were talking about the the Mossad and the and the Munich massacre. So this week uh, also saw the death of Tzvi Zamir. He's the former head of Mossad, and in he was the head of Mossad during uh, that. And the head of the current head of Mossad, uh, Dadi Barnes, said in his funeral, he said, "Those who took part in the October seventh massacre signed their own death warrant." So that is a very clear message to what what Israel is planning. We have to look at a, at a very big picture here. Right. And the question of what Hezbollah will do in the north is a big question. By the way, we are now 90 days into the war. 65, more than 65, a thousand Israelis have been evacuated from the northern border. This is something that has never happened. This is unprecedented, not even during the Second Lebanon War. It's sad to say as an Israeli, that's all already an achievement in Hezbollah's column. Now, the question is, would Nasrallah go to a full-scale war now when Israel is fully prepared, soldiers are on the border, the citizens aren't, is a question. But obviously, this is a problem to be dealt with. Now, the Americans are saying quite clearly, we're going to solve this diplomatically. We're going to push Hezbollah back uh, from the border. Sadly, the agreement, uh, 1701, after the Second Lebanon War, didn't work as well. And, and UNIFIL, the UN, who's trying to, you know, prevent Hezbollah from doing that, are not uh, succeeding. This is a problem that Israel will have to deal with. The question is how, and the question is when. That is still on the table this week. Your point about the movement, the displacement of those Israelis mm-hmm. who live on, on along the northern border, a couple of things on that. Mm-hmm. One, completely overlooked, misunderstood, not known about outside Israel, I think. The internal refugees, as it were. I think some there's some knowledge that people move from the Gaza envelope from the south, but the idea that you And know, all in tens all, there are 250,000 almost from, from the southern part and the northern part. And I'm, I, Put I, I together, it's a quarter it's of a million people. Right? I don't think it's right. known at all uh, that those people are there in temporary accommodation and people in, you know, kids in classrooms that have been popping up. I saw one on the campus of Tel Aviv University. That is not known. That's item one. Second, I agree with you. It's an achievement of Hezbollah to get Israelis to have to move within the borders of their own country. But it has created this opening and obligation. And that's the interesting thing. On the one hand for Israel, it means, as you just, I think, hinted, it has a freer hand to operate against Hezbollah in the, in southern Lebanon because it doesn't fear immediate reprisals against its own, hitting its own citizens on those in those border communities. But it's also created an obligation on Israel, which is it is more or less said to those border residents, you won't have to come back until it's safe for you to come back. We will make it safe there uh, along that northern border. And therefore, they kind of have to make good on that promise, just as they've had to make good to the uh, they will have to make good on the promise to those in the south that they will quiet the threat from Hamas, you know, a threat which hasn't been quieted as your experience on New Year's Eve testifies, hearing those rockets, but they've now got a, they've created for themselves the government, I mean, and the military, an, an expectation and an obligation for those people who've left their homes, that they now have to neutralize that threat from Hezbollah, how exactly do you do it? So you know, it's a big pressure. I, I agree. And the, the, the assessment is 
that at this point in time, Nasrallah does not want war because if he wanted war, he would open up a second front on October 8th when Israel was completely unprepared and still shocked. He didn't. And what most Israeli uh, defense representatives believe is that he would want to protect Iran and himself, but he wouldn't want to do this for for Hamas in Gaza. Um, but still, we are playing, you know, both sides are playing with fire here and things can escalate quite quickly. Yeah. We mentioned uh, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by that US drone strike in, uh, you know, exactly four years ago, January 2020. And these events that were held uh, in Iran to mark his death, obviously, people know that a couple of bombs went off at those events. And, you know, initial reports spoke of about 100 killed. Obviously, there was speculation right away about who had done that. There were Iranian voices saying, that, ah, we detect the hand of Israel. Most analysts everywhere else, I mean, all my, you know, all of them say this was not Israel, not their modus operandi, no reason to do it, no benefit. And instead, that Iran should look elsewhere, possibly at Sunni uh, radicals associated with Islamic State or others. But, you know, very par for the course uh, for the region that where something like this happens the finger of blame, even just rhetorically pointed at Israel. But I think that's something we can say does not have Israel's fingerprints on it. Yeah, I mean, Iran is not lacking enemies on either side of its extremism. The current idea behind this is that it could have been ISIS, but no, no one is seriously uh, blaming Israel, including uh, the United States saying, you know, we, we don't have any uh, signs for that. We should probably say, uh, we, we have been going around the, the Gaza war, but we should say that the update on that is that it does look like in the next couple of weeks, uh, there will be a scaling down of the Operation Gaza, different mode of fighting, which, you know, the IDF is at this point sort of confidence in a way that uh, it is making progress, otherwise it wouldn't have considered uh, scaling down. And Hamas at this point is saying that hostage release will only happen after end of fighting. So this is where we are 90 days yeah. into this war. Yeah. And none of that, by the way, has stopped it still making huge news around the world. Mm -hmm. Sometimes actually items that capture the headlines outside Israel are not those that make news inside Israel. And just an example of that this week, a lot of attention paid in the international media to reports that did actually originate, I think, with the uh, Zman Israel, the Times of Israel's Hebrew uh, site, which reported that the voluntary, in quotes, resettlement of Palestinians from Gaza is slowly becoming a key official policy of the government. It reported with, it named, brace for yourself, the Democratic Republic of Congo as a destination that Israel had in mind. Now, this prompted a whole lot of commentary in the UK and elsewhere suggesting my God, this is, you know, ethnic cleansing taken to an extreme level. The people of Gaza being kicked out and sent to Congo. I thought, you know, this, we should hear from you about how that looks where you are, because the take is rather different. Well, yes, I mean, th this started from the fact that the two most extreme ministers uh, in this uh, government are talking about the issue of voluntary exile. It's Smotrich and Bengvir. We have to say that yesterday, uh, a senior government official briefing reporters said, this is an illusion. It has no base in reality. 
No country will uh, uh, take in Gazans. This will not happen, not for a million Gazans and not for 5,000 Gazans. So this is not something that is on the table, but it does illustrate, uh, Jonathan, how this government operates. Because on the one hand, you have these uh, people like like Smotrich, like Ben Gvir, that are saying these things. And of course, even if no one is taking them seriously, in this case, to, to my understanding, this isn't a serious proposition on the table, but it just... You know, the damage that they uh, create with this kind of uh, rhetoric is, I don't want to say endless, but is huge for Israel. And when you see uh, uh, the, the fact that next week uh, the International Criminal uh, Court in uh, The Hague is going to discuss uh, the issue of, um, it's a petition by South Africa, I think, and we're going to talk about it extensively in next episode. Some of their case is going to be what Israeli's minister, Israeli ministers are saying Israel itself is going to defend itself and say, oh, these ministers who are talking don't have any relation to running the war, which is, you know, it's just, what can you say? What well, can you say about that? It, uh, to me, I can say, I think it's infuriating. I mean, it's maddening <laughs> because you said that you've very effectively through, you know, officials you've spoken to have knocked down this story. And you said, nobody takes it seriously. The trouble is nobody takes it seriously inside Israel, but outside People don't know the different gradations and calibrations of who is senior, who isn't. They think the finance minister, Betzalel Smotrich, the security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, they speak for right. the government. Inside, I mean, they I don't know, know that Netanyahu set up a war cabinet just so they won't be sitting there, right? right? They, they don't understand those nuances. And so that actually, as you say, at The Hague, this will be crucial because what South Africa right. did, and other people have been doing it, by the way, online, I'm sure the South African uh, Justice Ministry simply had to compile a few quotes off Twitter right. because people have been doing it, pulling together these lines, which they say go to show intent which is a crucial part of the law, international law on genocide, by pulling together these hair-raising quotes, and we've talked about some of them, you know, where various random figures, minor junior ministers and uh, Knesset members sound off about, you know, flattening Gaza, nuking Gaza, erasing Gaza. Much harder, by the way, when you have the finance minister Smotrich saying, we want a Gaza of 200,000 Gazans, not 2 million, that we could deal with. You put all those things together, it performs a pattern, and it's very, very hard for people on the out to explain, hold on, they were just talking to the base, they were riling up their audience on Channel 14, you know, Israel's Fox News, don't take it seriously, because those people are office holders. But in this case, our little bit of public service, we can say that you've uh, had reported it directly, that the Congo story is, what was the word used? Illusion. Um, yep. and, uh, and therefore probably not worth the amount of attention. And, and any idea to, of, of any country, by the way, yeah. is, is an illusion, is what, uh, is what was said. Yes, exactly, a, not uh, just Congo. But I think, you know, um, if people are in the business of public diplomacy or, or in any way trying to explain Israel's actions, you know, memo, you do need to get some people to not, uh, you know, open their mouth and sound off with wild fantasies on the assumption that no one will take them seriously because people do take them seriously. So two very brief notes on that. One, if you want to know the different levels of Israeli ministers, listen to Unholy. You'll get a very good idea about that. And second, just to quote a lovely line from a lovely series I used to watch many years ago, you know, you want to say to these ministers, your mouth is open, words are coming out. That's never a good thing. And I think some of them should show a little bit more restraint. 
Not that our listeners need any prompting as to why to listen to Unholy, but you just mentioned knowing the different gradations of ministers. The other reason to listen to us is so that you are never or almost never caught by surprise by the political news that comes out of Israel. Last week, we talked a lot about the leaked ruling from the Supreme Court on this crucial decision as part of the Netanyahu's judicial overhaul, namely his scrapping of the reasonableness clause by which the Supreme Court could strike down government decisions they regarded as extremely unreasonable. We said it was coming. We told you the majority. We It had been leaked and we worked, worked over all of that ground. And sure enough, this week, Yonit? Yes, well, the leak uh, that we reported on uh, last week was uh, a leak to our uh, correspondent on Channel 12, our political analyst, Amit Segal. And indeed, it was Unbelievably accurate. Eight judges were for striking down the uh, um, amendments to the basic law, the heart of Netanyahu's judicial uh, coup or judicial overhaul. Seven judges were against it. Now, you can't say, oh, well, the Supreme Court is split. But I think the most important point made uh, and, and really historic in that regard is that there was a clear majority, 12 judges out of 15, that ruled that the court does have the authority to intervene, essentially, to subject basic laws in Israel to judicial review. And that is a historic point. And in that regard, there's a very clear uh, majority. That was really the heart of the argument. Who has the power or who has the final word? We'll just add to that another drama or a second blow to Netanyahu's judicial coup, and that is uh, has to do with the incapacitation law, uh, which passed in March and basically was sought to prevent Israel's attorney general from declaring Netanyahu as unfit. So the Supreme Court ruled that this law will only apply starting from the next Knesset term. Two massive blows uh, to Netanyahu's judicial coup. At the end of the day, you know what's interesting about this, Jonathan? If this had happened before October 7th, we would be on air talking about it for weeks, and we would be on this podcast with a special update. But of course, the world changed, and the battle after the war will not be about the power of the court. It will be about whether or not Netanyahu will remain in power. And that is an important thing to remember when we look at, again, this very dramatic, very historic, very important ruling. Um, but in the context of October 7th, it's, of course, shifted in, in its importance. Yeah, it's now, like we said last week, on the inside pages, but its significance is huge for all the reasons you've said. I thought that 12 out of 15 judges ruling is so significant for the reasons uh, you've unpacked. It's looked to me... And I'm told it's unusual for all the judges to participate in a judgment, the whole, the full yeah, bench. That's, um, I think it was the first time the full bench. First time they've done that. Yeah. And it reminded me a little bit of a, of a decision when the UK Supreme Court did that, ruling against Boris Johnson when he tried to suspend Parliament. In a way, sort of something vaguely similar uh, back in 2019. They also went out of their way. Judges wanted their, uh, to make a point that the court as an institution is saying uh, that you cannot, in a way, get round things by, and I remember this was said at the time, passing a law in the normal way, simple majority, in other words, just, as it were, 50% plus one is enough to get it through the Knesset, and then tying it up in a ribbon and saying, this is a basic law, it's now the constitution. And the judges effectively are saying, no, that we're not going to fall for that trick. We're going to be involved as if this was any other law. You just putting a label on it doesn't make it yep. um, uh, sacrosanct and out of our reach. So a really significant uh, move and moment. And I think it does mean that 
from both sides, actually, the judicial battle that dominated so much of 2023 up to October the 7th is not coming back in this form. I don't think Netanyahu is going to try and bring it back in some way. And I think the opposition mm-hmm. are now who, who rallied and mobilised, they're in a different place too. So politics has moved and been transformed really since October the 7th. So this is interesting. We're doing something uh, we've never done before. We have a poll uh, done exclusively for Unholy for our podcast by Morning Consult. And it's um, it talks a little bit about what uh, the opinions in the United States are vis-a-vis Israel and Hamas and the war that is going on now. And I think it's really interesting. It is. The, the, these numbers, survey of uh, Americans, uh, you know, de- demographically weighted across the whole country by Morning Consult, it, it finds that um, there is, broadly speaking, a split in how people view what you could call the Israeli government's narrative of the war, namely that Israel is acting in its self-defense after Hamas's uh, terror attack, trying to ensure it is not attacked again and doing its best to ensure civilians in Gaza are not harmed. And uh, the number of Americans who agree with that and accept that number is 35%. So over a third of Americans accept that. A smaller number, closer to one in four, 27%, say instead that Israel, yes, is acting in self-defense after Hamas's terrorist attack, trying to ensure it's not attacked again. But Israel's response has gone too far, and it does not seem to care about civilian casualties in Gaza. Some 27% of all Americans subscribe to that. So opinion divided, but the view that I think Israel's defenders would be advancing is narrowly ahead, but it's 35% to 27% or so. Uh, And then much, much smaller numbers for this view, Israel is an occupying power and Hamas was justified in attacking it on the 7th of October. That's just 6%. And then there are none of the above and don't know, which makes up 10% and 22% respectively. And as you would expect, we've talked about a lot among younger Americans, the picture is rather different. There uh, are under among under 45s, just 24% agree, one in four, with that sort of Israel position. And more, a bigger number, 28% think Israel has gone too far and does not seem to care about civilian casualties. So a really interesting sort of spread there of opinion and showing how opinion is divided. I think actually in some ways confirming some of the you know, impression uh, many of our guests have given us since October 7 on the podcast. One last thing, the poll also exclusively for us surveyed the degree, the intensity of interest there is among Americans in this subject. And there I have to say I was surprised because we asked uh, the, you know, for a percentage of the adult US population whether they are following num- events closely. And 25%, one in four, said they're following events in Israel and Gaza very closely. And 59%, when you combine that with people who are following it somewhat closely. And, you know, Israeli politics, 13% say very closely, 41% say either very or somewhat closely. Similarly high numbers on anti-Semitic activity in the US and so on. Um, it says to me that, you know, what we have thought often is of interest, yes, to you and me, Oni, and to the people who listen to Unholy regularly, Americans are paying attention to this. This isn't just mm-hmm. a sort of far away foreign news story. So close to two thirds, 
say to Morning Consult when we polled them for Unholy that they are following events very or somewhat closely. I think that's, to me, in some ways, a striking number and surprising that Americans are really engaged with what is happening and what you and I talk about week after week. Right, they're following it closely and they have a a pretty firm opinion. I mean, that is really interesting. There aren't a lot of people saying we don't know. There are a lot of people with a very firm opinion. So that is uh, really interesting. So obviously, the uh, U.S. administration is involved, deeply involved in the war, and the media is deeply engaged in it. So I think that we have a perfect guest that uh, has walked the corridors, both of the administration and of the media, and we want to hear from her. Jen Psaki is the host of the talk show Inside with Jen Psaki on MSNBC, recently expanded to prime time on Monday. Up until May of 2022, she served the Biden administration as the White House press secretary. And before that, served in the Obama administration as, among other things, White House deputy press secretary, deputy communications director, and previously spokesperson for the United States State Department from 2013 to 2015. Jen Psaki, very good to have you with us on Unholy. Great to be here with both of you. And thank you for all of the work you both do to explain things to people. Well, we, we, we're, we're doing our, our best and it's not always easy with what's going on at the moment. But one yeah. of the things we covered right at the start after October the 7th was Joe Biden moving incredibly swiftly Mm -hmm. to express solidarity with Israel, but also to prevent this becoming a regional war, Mm -hmm. sending two aircraft carriers to the region and this one word message to anyone threatening uh, or having any ideas of threatening Israel, don't. Now, though, there is trouble on three, maybe even four fronts, you've got the, we've been talking about it already, but the developments in the north with Hezbollah uh, there in Lebanon, you have the Houthis firing on Red Sea shipping traffic. What do you, you know, do you imagine is the conversation going on around Joe Biden and are in the White House now to stop this unraveling yeah. even further? Well, first, I would say, and I know you all have been covering this and talking about this since the beginning and then even before, a lot of this was unfortunately predictable in terms of what we saw of the escalation in the early days and weeks. And if you're sitting in the White House, you knew that during that time, even if it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of discussion about that publicly. Um, one of the things that I spent, as you mentioned, um, a couple of years in the State Department, and obviously I've worked on national security issues in the U.S. government for many years before joining MSNBC, that it's important for people to remember is that, um, as Madeleine Albright used to say, diplomacy grows best in the dark. And so um, a lot of what is happening, the public is not seeing and not understanding. It doesn't mean that it's going to be successful, but what is happening right now, you have Amos Hochstein, who's of course in the region. You have Brett McGurk, who's been back and forth. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has been back and forth. And Joe Biden himself, now I spent a year and a half working for him. He is constantly on the phone with foreign leaders, with people in the region, with people who were traveling back and forth to the region. And if you're sitting in the White House in these national security meetings right now, what your hope is, is that you can both de-escalate 
um, because that's the only way in their view to kind of bring an end to a lot of the suffering here, but also find a path to bringing the the hostages home, some of whom are Americans, but even those who, of course, are not Americans, and then try to prevent, not to be dramatic here, but an escalation that could turn into such a large global conflict. It's beyond, obviously, the impact in the Middle East. So this is not an easy task, but if you're in the White House, you're having a range of meetings. Some involve the president, some involve you know, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, some involve what's called the deputies level, the deputies committee meetings, where frankly, a lot of the decisions are made and the discussions are had. And you're trying to accomplish those things. Not easy, but a lot of it is happening, again, in the dark, uh, meaning mm -hmm. private conversations, quiet conversations, because that's the best way typically to get these things done. You know, there seems to be, obviously, this unwavering support by the American president. And I can tell you as an Israeli on October 10th, when he came out with his statement, you could hear a collective sigh of relief mm -hmm. uh, for the first time in, in a few very long days uh, that the Israelis felt like the American president really has their back. He was he always tends to say, and you kind of feel it from him, mm -hmm. that he really cares about, about Israel. He really cares about Israelis. You've known him for such a yes. long time. Can you talk a little bit about where that emotion comes from? That is who he is, how he feels, how he talks about these issues privately. As long as I have known him, which obviously I knew him quite well when he was when I started working for him as president, but also I worked for the Biden, the, the Obama Biden administration for eight years when he was vice president. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he is somebody who throughout his career has been, um, a strong supporter of Israel, of Israel's right to defend itself, of, um, you know, speaking out against anti-Semitism, which is obviously an enormous issue in the United States right now. And that is true to who he is. Um, what is also true, uh, which is not conflicting in any way, is that he has had a rocky relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu over the course, as you both know well, and um, over the course of, frankly, decades. <laughs> you know, they've known each other for a long time. They had some particularly difficult moments when he was vice president, and um but they've known each other for a long time. I've been in the room when they've had conversations, um, including, you know, back in 2021, where there was a lot of private diplomacy happening. And they speak like old friends who have had conflicts, <laughs> you know, with each other. Mm -hmm. That's how they talk. And I think they're his bet. And we'll see because we don't know. The story is still being written here. Of course, it's ongoing every day. That's how diplomacy works is that. Um, one, he very much believes in Israel's right to defend itself, but he also felt that if you, if he hugged Netanyahu, who was the prime minister, whether people like it or not, and a lot of people in the United States don't like that, and people in Israel too, um, then he, it would help give him leverage to unwind things. Now, we're in that now, and we don't know if that is actually going to work, and it hasn't necessarily entirely worked to date, but that is, that has been his, his bet. I'm just wondering about at what point uh, he places a different bet. And in a way, at what point, if any, does he think, okay, that strategy hasn't worked? And I'm thinking of the noises that are coming from within the administration that you worked in. So we, yeah. your network, actually, MSNBC, last night aired an interview with this official, Tariq Habash, an official in the Department of Education, I think, who resigned, I think is the second official to do that, in protest at the Biden administration's mm -hmm. support for Israel. There have been these letters as well, these sort of round-robin letters, anonymous staffers saying, we need you to call for a ceasefire. We don't agree with 
as they would see it, the kind of blanket support you're giving Israel. I'm just wondering if it even relates even to what we talked about at the beginning, whether there is some line that, I- that Israel could cross, whether it's expanding the fight into into yeah. Lebanon. Uh, so you know the man well, you know the pressures there within the administration. Is there, a, has he just placed this bet and he's going to stick with it? Or is there a moment where he says, okay, I can, I, I can I give you support no longer? Yeah. I, I don't think from the beginning that he said, I'm never going to move, right? And it's clear by even their slight tweaks in public language from him, from the Secretary of State, even from spokespeople, you know, at the State Department, at the Defense Department, as you both know, even slight tweaks in language from the U.S. government as it relates to Israel is sending a huge message about um, aggression, about military action. Now, at the same time, it would be very satisfying to say the base of the Democratic Party, that is some of whom are quite displeased with the president's support for Israel. It's a complicated issue, and we can talk about that more on the political front. Um, if he were to kind of call out more aggressively what is happening um, in Gaza and the humanitarian suffering, mm-hmm. which he has certainly done, but not to the satisfaction of everybody in the Democratic Party, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but his bet is that doing that publicly is not effective at this moment. We don't know if that bet is entirely right or not. This is, again, still happening. But, you know, that requires a level of kind of discipline, frankly, and and um, when you're working in the U.S. government because you're getting attacked from all ends. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing... Obviously, in any individual's voice who's speaking out from the U.S. government is important. I think it's important for people to understand contextually that the person who resigned from the State Department with strong feelings stayed there through the entire course of the Trump administration for everything that was happening, right? Um, the person who resigned from the Department of Education, again, a Palestinian-American, speaking to, frankly, what many, many uh, young people Uh, and people in the Democratic Party are feeling right now, not working on these issues, working in the Department of Education. That doesn't undervalue their views. It just means um, we shouldn't overvalue what it means in terms of the U.S. government either. I also know, though, that within the U.S. government, there are a lot of people who feel quite conflicted and feel This is a very, very difficult issue. No human being who has a heart and soul can look at what's happening in Gaza right now and feel that it's okay. Of course not. You have children, you have women, uh, you have men, you have families suffering, people are starving. I mean, you all know, you you talk about this, right? Um, The challenge is there's not a super easy solution here, in part because if Joe Biden had gone out and said, cut this out, it, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not waiting for him to tell him what to do. I mean, this is so this is like, how do you come to a conclusion? And I think that's what they're trying to determine. It doesn't mean it's going to work out perfectly, but that's their objective, knowing that doing that publicly is not going to necessarily get the end result that people would like to see, given the suffering happening in Gaza. We are obviously uh, in an election year already uh, in the U.S. And I had a, a very good friend here in come to Israel. He's from the think tank world in Washington. And he said to me something that sort of uh, echoes in my head and, and, and troubles me. He said to me, Joe Biden can lose because of Israel, and that would be a catastrophe. Can Joe Biden lose because of Israel? His support of Israel? I don't think we know that yet. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I think that is leaping to a conclusion that no human being in the United States who's covered politics, and I've worked in politics for a long time, can predict. But here's why. Um, obviously, what is happening right now in Israel, in Gaza, is devastating. It's scary. I mean, it is so many things. Um Worse things could happen in the U.S. to impact the the election that we don't even know. Just think about the fact that back in 2008, I was working for Barack Obama. We were talking primarily in that election, especially in the primary, about the Iraq war. That was a dominant issue. Fast forward to six weeks, two months before the election, and the financial crisis happened. And that's what the election became about. So these are hugely important global issues um, the fact that they are being covered, I think maybe more people will be informed, hopefully, maybe <laughs> over time about how important these issues are. Um, but I think the prediction game is a little dangerous because there's just a lot of things that can happen. I will say on the political mm-hmm. front right now, if the election were tomorrow, which it's not, there's several layers of this politically, right? One, there is a generational movement, not to be overly dramatic, but among young people and especially in the Democratic Party, who feel that, and you just see this kind of pop up, that, you know, Israel is an aggressor, an occupier. I'm not validating this myself. I'm just articulating what people, right, and feel uh, are, are largely um, much more supportive of kind of um, a different point of view than than has traditionally been the view of the U.S. government, right? Um, that is, you, you see that. You see that in polls now. At the same time, what is also happening is that there is rising anti-Semitism in the country and a real um, displeasure among not just Republicans and independents, but still some Democrats, too, about the lack of action and unified action in speaking out and acting against that by uh, by Democratic leaders, not Joe Biden, but others. That is also happening at the same time, Right. We've obviously seen what's happening on college campuses. So my point is, this is multi-layered, and it's not as simple, I think, as anybody will say it is. And I don't think we know yet what the impact mm-hmm. uh, will exactly be. No, I think that's um, very well taken, that point. And the, so therefore, this isn't a prediction in a way, or, or it's a prediction of a different kind, which is, given what you've said about gener- the generational shift, it does seem, from just from what you've said, that those people who call Joe Biden the last Zionist, you know, who say that he'll be the last Democratic president who does have, famously, in his kishkas, in his guts, this feeling for Israel. Yeah. Just as a matter of of political demographics, really, the next leader of the Democratic Party, who will inevitably be younger than him, will not be like him when it comes to Israel. They will have to be in tune with that younger group that you're describing, I think, completely accurately, whose instincts and uh, intuitions about this conflict are in a completely different place from his. And that means in some ways, the Republican presence might be different. But for Democrats, Biden's going to be the last of a of a kind. Well, maybe, maybe not. Here's why. Um, And I mean, I'm just this is why politics is so interesting, right? Because it's a measure of the moment. It's a measure of, and yes, there are certain trends that are important to see and watch, but there are young leaders. I mean, Hakeem Jeffries, if the Democrats win back the House, is going to be the Speaker of the House, right? Um, He's not exactly where Joe Biden is, but he's not 
um, in a so far off different place either. So I, I think in part of it depends too on leadership in Israel, right? I mean, I think one of the things that is, um, unfortunate right now, and I think is leading to some of the, um, very concerning anti-Semitism we're seeing is emerging in some people's views of like the actions of Netanyahu with the Israeli people, which is not the same. I mean, as you know, well, I mean, the, there's a lot of dissatisfaction, anger, protest, all the things with Netanyahu. And um, I don't know. So I don't know how leadership would impact that. It depends on what happens, right? I mean, so I think that Joe Biden is, um, you know, he has a view of foreign policy that is about seeking commonality, common grounds, and seeking places where you can make progress, um, which is a good thing. I don't know that it is a earth-shattering shift. I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to that, but it is still important to factor that that there is a there is a generational shift in terms of how things are viewed right now and how they sit, right? But there are still, you know, you see this on college campuses. There's still outrage about anti-Semitism. There's still outrage about a lot of issues that don't get as much attention. So I don't, I, it's, it's hard to predict how that all will merge in the next couple of years, is I guess all, all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, we, we Israelis tend to be very self-involved, so I can go on and on asking about Israel. But I, I do want to dive a little bit into into uh, U.S. politics specifically. I, I remember that Joe Biden always loves this quote. He says, um, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I assume you've heard him say that once or twice. <laughs> a few times. A few times. A few times. Um, and And what I'm wondering about this right now. There isn't a clear political alternative. We all think it's going to be Donald Trump. There isn't a clear, you know, uh, Donald Trump as the nominee. Will that change for the better for him once there is a clear alternative? Yeah, because we're still, people have different names for it. I'm going to call it like the unicorn phase of this, where like everybody's looking for a magical unicorn, like Democrats, Republicans, everybody here. They're like, somebody else will merge. And you're like, who? Like, it's just, you know, it's going... All sorts of crazy things happen in U.S. politics. All sorts of crazy things happen in Israeli politics, maybe crazier in a different way. But, you know, there is this Haley hope that um, that I would say anti-Trump Republicans and others have. She's definitely got some momentum and is having a moment. Um, she's also kind of stepped in it and put her foot in her mouth in the last couple of weeks. Um, it's hard to run for president. I mean, it is hard. A little bit. So, like, and the more focus you get on yourself, you know, um, Dean Phillips is not going to defeat Joe Biden. I think it's like, you know, I mean, come on. There's been no indication of that, I should say. Um, so, yes, right now, the choice has not been crystallized yet. And there's still there's still a percentage. I don't know what the latest there's. It's uh, ever changing, but a surprising percentage of people who still don't think it's going to be Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. And, you know, there's still primaries to be had, but that certainly seems to be where it's headed by all indicators. Mm -hmm. What's also true is that right now, Trump has uh, effectively used his legal troubles, which he has gotten himself into. Those are very diplomatic way of saying that legal troubles, um, his four indictments, <laughs> you know, 91 counts <laughs> um, 
to his political advantage in the primary, right? He is like, um, I think Maggie Haberman put it this way, New York Times reporter, was just so it stuck in my mind, a very undisciplined, disciplined person or something like that. And as undisciplined as he is, he is disciplined in, in painting himself as a complete martyr, right? And that is working yeah. in the primary. That does not mean it's going to work in a general election because the general election electorate is much bigger. It's much different. They're not even tuned in right now or tuned into all of the legal cases that is are going to be so front and center. He's going to be in the courtroom a lot um, over the next couple of months. How will that be a factor? We don't know yet. But to suggest it's not going to be a factor and it's only going to help him, it's we don't know that yet either. Um, so, yes, I think it will help. Joe Biden, a great deal. And he's giving a couple of speeches. I mean, over the next several days, one um, leading up to the January 6th anniversary, which, of course, will be about democracy, one on Monday, um, that some of that, like a speech does not solve things. A speech is not the way people consume or make decisions, but kind of laying some of that groundwork about the choice so that people can echo the choice is will be very helpful to him, I think. You're obviously now outside, and when you were inside, I would understand you'd have to. I can guess what you'd have to say to the in answer to the question I'm going to ask. But now you're outside, you're freer. Which is this: people who really like Joe Biden, admire him deeply, and think that his record has been phenomenal as president, nevertheless mm -hmm. say he is just too old to seek a second term. And it's not just the actual chronological age, it's also his demeanour and his manner. They say it with regret, they wish things were different, but there is something about running for president where you need to be able to sort of command a microphone and a stage, and they say it with a tremendously heavy heart. Obviously, when you were at the podium, you'd have batted that away. But now that you're not, can you not see the force of that, even among people who want him to do well and want him to beat Donald Trump? Well, here's, I mean, in my experience working very closely with him, um, he was very with it, very on top of it, and very much working 16 hours a day on everything from Ukraine to the economy and all the things. That wasn't my experience. His superpower has never been as a public speaker, back to when he was younger than I am, which is not a way, it's not an argument you like run on in a campaign, but that's also true. His superpower is not that. His superpower is empathy. It's connecting with people. It's convincing people because it's true that he's fighting for them. That's not been the central argument in the campaign. Trump is three years younger than him. It's like he was a freshman in college when Joe Biden was a senior. Yeah, but if that's my point about it's not about the age. It's about the kind of vigor and demeanor. Not in private, because I agree with you looks, for everything about the optics. Biden, but how it looks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I have been critical and I will be when I think it's warranted to be critical. But I also think this has been this age thing, which again, it's a three year difference. And how do you define demeanor? What does that even exactly mean? This has become effectively a push from the right on social media and through a range of means mm -hmm. about Joe Biden being senile. They've done that for multiple years mm -hmm. and it's worked. So that is a challenge for the White House. It doesn't mean it's accurate. And and I think there's a difference. Like, they have to deal with this perception that he's old and feeble. At the same time, it doesn't mean he is senile, as the right wing is portraying him. No one who works with him will tell you that. 
So, I, you know, I, I think it's a challenge for them. There's no easy answer on how to solve it. It's probably their biggest issue is that people think he's too old, but it doesn't mean that he is unable to do the job. That wasn't my experience. I haven't worked there in a year and a half, but that wasn't my experience when I worked closely for him. You know, we're talking a lot about your experience then, your experience now. You made a huge career transition. It's a very successful one. But I kind of, you know, we, we called it at the top of the show, moving from C transforming from CJ Craig to Rachel Maddow, because we pretend that CJ Craig is a real person. But, uh, we but I mean, great if she was. don't break my heart. <laughs> what is this news you're bringing me? I didn't know nothing, this. nothing. And Santa Claus is real. Forget it. Nothing, Jonathan. We didn't say anything. But the point is that, that I mean, it is quite a transition. I was trying to think of someone in Israel doing the same. In Israel, it only happens the other way around. There are a lot of journalists yeah. going into public politics, going into public service. Not the, the other, other way around here, too. I mean, yeah. but you were standing in front of, of skeptical journalists every day uh, for many years, and suddenly you became one of them, in a way. And I kind of wonder about that. First of all, do you miss it? Um, and what do you like about, about television news? Um, I miss the people. And I miss, this is such a weird thing to say, but I worked in the White House more than anywhere else in my adult career, right? So there's a familiarity about the building and the place and the flow of things um, that anytime you change careers, I mean, when I, when I changed to MSME, when I came here and I did my first election night, I was like, well, anyone sit with me at the lunch table? <laughs> you know, you just kind of like, it's like, I'm new here. I brought snacks. I didn't know what to do. Um, so... I miss the people and there are times I will say um, as horrific and I have not lived through it in the way you all have lived through it. I mean, you know, when October 7th happened and the days after and the tragedy and the horror of that, it was like the first time where I was like, I wish I was in the White House because I want to know what's happening. Right. And I want to be on the trip with Secretary Blinken to, to the region. I want to know what these conversations are happening behind the scenes. And I know from experience, there's so much happening that we don't know about. So there are moments like that that I miss it. Um, at the same time, um, serving for Joe Biden, I'm not the only one who, who probably would be in this position or would say this. Because of Trump, those of us who thought we were retiring from government, not retiring, I'm not that old, but like we came back. I mean, it's an honor to serve and that was the best job ever, but we came back and I'm hardly the only one. Many people you've never heard of because the impact Trump had on, and this is not even a partisan thing. Like this is like, if Mitt Romney had been president, I would probably not have come back to government. You know what I mean? Or John McCain or many of these people who I may have disagreed with, but like, you know that they're safe with the nuclear codes and they're not going to like try to take down the democracy. But we came back because we wanted to be any, play any role in trying to kind of rebuild and protect the fundamentals of the country. Right. And we all played small roles in that. Um, so to me, serving again was like icing on the cake. And I got to do this amazing job during a very difficult time. And I loved it. And I loved the briefing. The briefing was so fun. Um, and I loved that. And I missed it. I missed that. Um, what I love about television news, you know, here's the thing. I could not have done the job by, jobs I'd done for 20 years if I didn't have a huge respect for the role of the press and the media, even times where people were yelling at me on the phone or screaming at me in the briefing. 
because it is a part of democracy and protecting democracy in my view, right? And answering those questions, even when, and believe me, I would go out there some days and they'd yell at me and I was like, I know, <laughs> you know, in my mind, I'm like, I know we don't have good answers because the policy is not good or we're just not there yet. It's like, I know. Um, but what I love about working here is um, one, the personality of people who are in journalism is not dissimilar from people who serve in government, which is like trying to do, make the world a better place in just different ways, right? In different ways with different objectives. And you have people here who I work with now, and I'm sure you both work with, who are endlessly curious, who are always asking questions and wanting to know more information. And that is true in government too. It's different, but the, the personality types are similar. And like, I can wander around Andrew Mitchell's down the hall, Joy Reid's two doors down, Tom Costello's reporting on like NASA, he's like around the corner. It's interesting people. So I love that. And I love that I can dive into things and learn new things. And one of the things, the last thing I say, this was a good question, I could just, whatever, but it's like that, you know, I spent 20 years in government where I was always trained, do not talk about legal cases and anything that the judiciary is working on because that it was like that is do not talk about that and now this is such a big part of what we talk about so i've really had to force myself as much as like i could talk about foreign policy and politics like i'll you know till i'm blue in the face i've really had to force myself i joke that i'm like in you know i'm like a second year law student now because i'm like <laughs> just mm. trying to like learn everything so forcing myself to really get engrossed in things that I hadn't spent years working on. I mean, that's not dissimilar from government, but it's one of the things that I love the most and trying to like talk about it in a way that's English. So, yeah. I still can't get over you saying, Dave Lee, briefings are fun. <laughs> and I used to always talk about how the briefing was the best part of the day, because at that point you've like gathered all the information, you've like shaken all the trees in the government or to get stuff. And then you're like, well, I have what I have now. So, you know, as always, but I feel that way. You know, I've talked to a lot of people as just a sidebar who have different roles of public speaking, people who are people who've argued cases before the Supreme Court, comedians, all sorts of people who all say, and I felt this way, before you go out and before you do your thing, you're thinking, oh my God, am I ready? Do I have everything I need? And you're kind of, over and then once you start, you like, everything goes away and you're just in the thing, right? And that is, that was true of the briefing. True of being on the host of a television show. I don't know if you feel that way, but yeah. It's, it's a performance. You're, you're describing your each life. In a way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, meaning like you've prepared, you've read every article, yeah. you have to be present when you do it. That's what I mean, right? And that is true yeah. of no matter what your role is, so... Yeah. I want to this may be our last one and maybe I'm going to bring things down just a bit but because of what you said about how you went back into service because of the Trump presidency yeah. and what that did and how that was different from a McCain or a Romney what do you think a Trump 2.0 presidency would be like what is the danger as you see it you're kind of exhaling anxiously on screen <laughs> yeah. as, uh, as I ask that question but you know what? I'm just wondering what you think we, the world, should be bracing for if that were to happen. Well, um, I just interviewed her, and I maybe you've talked to her as well. But Liz Cheney's book is a great. It's a little dark, but we just went we went dark um, predictor of what that would be, um, and the reason the the thing that is scary is that. Um, the system of government in the United States has not been tested in the way that Trump 
has tested it and would test it further. Meaning there are things like pardon power and how it works in the United States. And this sounds like a small example, but it's an important one where the tradition is that the Department of Justice um, has a review process and they make a recommendation to the president to make sure that there's no conflicts with like legal cases or deals being struck with people um, that people are, are warranted of a, of a pardon. There are times when this has been messed up. The end of the Clinton administration, people use that example, though it's not as bad as the Trump stuff. Trump has basically said he's going to use pardon power to reward his political friends and use the judicial system to punish his enemies. That is a wild and scary um, approach to using the judiciary, which has long been an independent branch of government. That's just one example. But I think what I would say is that his view of power and his own survival will mean he is unchecked, untested by anyone because he will surround himself with sycophants. And it also means that for the world, he's not going to follow traditional rules of support of rule of law, of support of democracy, of support of, you know, the United States being imperfect, but like a country that wants to support our friends and allies uh, and have a seat at the table for making, protecting the world and making it a better place. Those are not his values. And that I think, um, should scare people, whether they're here or uh, or outside of the United States. Good. My my uh, co-host always likes to end with a high note. <laughs> I was going to end with television news is great, but he is a man of print. <laughs> He's a man of print. He doesn't like to hear that, so he wanted to ask me another question. <laughs> Jen Saki, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you both so much. Thank, thank you very you. very much indeed. That was uh, that was fascinating. I, I have to admit that when um, that quote of Joe Biden that I've heard his advisors and aides quote a lot, right? Don't compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the alternative. And I was, I wanted to ask, what did you hear him tell more? This story or the story about Golda? But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about that line, by the way, and Biden does say it all the time, is yeah. it's only a line that would have become a trademark if you were of you felt yourself to be an imperfect person. You yeah. wouldn't need to say it all the time. It's not a line you can imagine Barack Obama needing to say. Definitely not Donald Trump look, saying, right? You can't imagine Donald right? Trump saying that. They would never do it, but built into the line is, look, I know I'm not perfect, you know? And right. I, I sort of, it's one of, you know, Biden's, to my mind, quite sort of charming qualities is that he does know his own limitations in a lot of ways. Uh, and she reflected, no, it was great fun talking to her and she has moved sort of seamlessly between these two worlds, but they're both so important right now. Now, mm -hmm. you know, the people she used to work for, the Biden administration, in a way, are, have their hands on a lot of the levers in the Middle East conflict right now, in all its fronts, on all its fronts. But how the conflict is seen, we saw it in some of those poll numbers I referred to just before the interview, that, you know, how Americans are seeing it, particularly progressive Americans, MSNBC plays a really big part in that. So Jen Psaki is, you know, straddles both these really important worlds in terms of the stuff you and I focus on unholy. So it was great to hear from her. Meanwhile, in her own backyard, the ripple effects, the sort of aftershocks of the Israel-Hamas war are really playing out, yes, in politics and in the media, but also on campus. We've talked about it ever since. 
That hearing on Capitol Hill where three university heads were asked by Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik what their policies said on university about, hypothetically, somebody calling for genocide against Jews and the stumbling, faltering, legalistic answers from those three university heads have now brought two uh, departures. Uh, The second one to go just now is Claudine Gay, who has resigned as president of Harvard. She was the first black woman to serve as president of Harvard. She's now the shortest serving head of that college, driven out in part by that the failure to say the right thing in that hearing, as her critics saw it, where she, you know, she and the other university had said it was a context-dependent decision, but also for things that have emerged about her own academic record, um, nearly 50 instances of documented alleged plagiarism against her. Um, And so she is gone from that crucial role. And it just shows you that what, you know, the the conflict being played out in Israel and and in Gaza, most obviously, is just having these ramifications all over uh, the world, and particularly in the United States. Yeah, this reminds me of our conversation with Yasha Munk. Remember where he, when he described the heads of these institutions, he said they're never the academic superstars. They're always the ones who are very good at the administrative part of uh, this. Obviously, all three of them, we know, all presidents of, of all uh, three institutions failed miserably in trying to answer a pretty simple uh, question. As you said, two of them are now out. This flood of anti-Semitism that we have seen uh, three months in, right, three months after uh, October 7th, we are still seeing. Yeah. And Yasha Munk's brilliant point when we spoke to him was that, you know, if you know, these universities, Harvard included, in general and across the board, insisted on absolute freedom of speech in deference to America's First Amendment so that you could call for genocide against everyone because it's a free-for-all on campus. I think Claudine Gay would not have had to pay with her job. The point was that Harvard and other places were shown to be very inconsistent, that they were clamping down on speech that was deemed offensive or insensitive to other groups. But somehow when it came to Jews, it was the First Amendment trumped all other concern and everyone could say what they liked. It felt as if it was an instance of what has become a, a slogan coined by David Baddiel, the British writer and comedian, Jews don't count. And Claudine Gay uh, has paid for that. It's kicked off, as you can imagine, a whole argument and people saying, this is an example of you know white privilege and and racism against her and others then pointing out actually the first university had to be kicked to pay for her job Liz McGill from University of Pennsylvania is white and she was gone within three or four days of her testimony on Capitol Hill culture wars meets a real war between Israel mm-hmm. and Hamas and it is raging on American campus and in American public life um, we should say that um, since October 7th, we have kind of moved aside, shifted aside what has been our tradition for the past three years of doing this podcast, which is the Mensch and Chutzpah Awards at the end of the program. Now, we have kind of, again, in the last couple we of months- We benched the Mensch, didn't we? <laughs> sort of. Sort we of. benched the Mensch. Um, but do you have a rhyme for Chutzpah, smarty pants? Um, no, so- you've got me on that one. <laughs> We thought maybe hesitantly to bring that back in 2024, maybe um, kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so we're going to try and attempt to do that today. Um, how about you pick that up, Jonathan? Yeah, I think just tentative, a tentative re-entry back into this would be to nominate one in both categories. We did that occasionally. 
back in the day, uh, there would be something which somehow managed to tick both boxes. I thought we would mention the film One Life, which tells the story of Sir Nicholas Winton, uh, the British stockbroker who in 1938-1939 single-handedly or rather not single-handed, with a group of others, took it upon himself and two or three others to bring out 669 Jewish Czech refugees from Nazism. Uh, he kept this very quiet for a lot, many years in his life. Decades later, it emerged. And now there is a new film in which the older Nicholas Winton is played by the great uh, actor Anthony Hopkins. He plays him brilliantly, I have to say. The young Sir? Nicholas Winton played by Sir? Johnny Flynn. Anthony Hopkins, no. Sir Anthony Hopkins, did I accidentally downgrade him? I apologize to His Majesty and to you, Yonit, for downgrading. Um, That's and really Hopkins. in the conversation had to pick that up, but yeah, continue. And and he, it's a great, you know, it's a very, very laudable effort to tell a really uh, uh, important story. So, Mensch for reminding people of the story of Nicholas Winton and his rescue of 669 Jewish children. The Chutzpah Award goes not to the people who've made the film or, you know, heaven forbid, sir, to Sir Anthony himself, but rather to the marketing team for One Life, who have managed to put out a two-minute trailer and blurb and text in which one word is missing. Can you guess your neat what the missing word in the story is? Uh, if you watch, with J, ends with W and has an E in the middle. It really does. So you watch the two-minute trailer for One Life. These children are mysteriously more desperate to flee Czech, then Czechoslovakia for no reason that is really clearly stated. They are refugees. They are European. They are nowhere in that two-minute trailer, but also in some of the marketing material that's gone out there. People have been sharing it online saying, you know, I think there's something missing here. What what could that build, you know what could explain it? Maybe it is because, and this would be very depressing if it's true. Because of the war, Israel Hamas, they feel like, oh, just don't go there. But it it goes to that thing of in which the Jewish experience of the Holocaust. We're going to be, you know, it's going to be in people's minds a lot in January because of Holocaust Memorial Day coming up on January the twenty seventh. Is somehow universalized away as a story of you know man in man's inhumanity to man. Um, as if it's just a universal general thing, rather than a very specific attempt to eradicate Jews from the face of the earth. So credit to the makers of the film, Mensch, for telling this really good and inspiring story. Um, but I'm afraid a chutzpah award on its way to the marketeers who decided that uh, there was no need to say the J word to mention Jews. As one uh, observer put it, you know, essentially saying to Jews, you're getting written out of your own history. Yeah. Um, so a combined effort from mention chutzpah this week. Good. Okay. We're bringing it back slowly, but we are. Um, and we are winding up our uh, program, the first podcast uh, we have, 2024. And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Omri Barak. And we will meet next week. Look forward to it. Me too.